by God's grace, I hope we're not here 100 years from now. Somebody's not here 100 years from now saying, you remember that camp meeting back when Elder Mitchell was first year, he was conference president? We do this thing in the Adventist church where we have these centennial celebrations. Has, has anybody ever kind of looked at that? And like, for example, I was down at Southern Adventist University this last year, and I'm not trying to knock anybody, but I was there, they had their signs up, it was like a centennial, we've been here a hundred years. Is that anything an Adventist wants to advertise? You know what I mean? I mean, like, here we still are. And saints, we know that it's not because we've been waiting on the Lord. Inspiration tells us that He's been waiting on us. And so I have been pleading with the Lord that, that this camp meeting would be something different, that the Lord would be able to use something here. The Lord be able to use everything here to move things forward and hasten the coming of Jesus. Uh, so that, that's, that's my theme this week is going the distance. I don't have my monitor. Can you see it up there? Is it on yet? Okay, thank you. Um, I, I just wanted to know I'm not flipping slides up here and you're just like, there's, you know. Because it's time, I believe it's time God's people go the distance and finish this thing by his grace. Uh, I'm basing this morning's series on the book Steps to Christ. I'm not expounding on the book Steps to Christ to be drawing from it, but I've used the framework of it. For example, today's message is based on that chapter, God's Love for Man, the first chapter. Tomorrow's message is going to be on the sinner's need of Christ. Uh, the next day on Monday, it's going to be combining repentance and confession. So kind of that way, and I'm going to tell you, if you have not read that book in a while or read it ever get your hands on the book steps to christ is so much more that one thing i realized about the morning speaker the difference between the morning speaker and the evening speaker is i have a time limit i think they did that on purpose um and so i there's no covering everything and as i've in preparation been going through the book steps to christ we always think of that book as a oh that's kind of the beginner thing that book is so full and so I want to encourage you, if you haven't been through it in a while, to pick up that book maybe as we're going through this, uh, this week. Um, I want to welcome you, of course, who are here this morning, and I know that there are others joining us either by radio or streaming this morning, and I want to welcome you here, and I want to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me, and let's pray that the Lord would do something mighty for us during this week of camp meeting. Amen? Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you this morning for a new day of life, and Lord, especially that it's the Sabbath day, a special day that you have cleared your schedule for us. And Father, we just love you for that, and we ask this morning for the gift of your Holy Spirit, not because we're deserving of it, but because you've promised. You've promised us that you are more willing to give us the Holy Spirit than we are to give good gifts to our children. And Father, we, you've told us to pray for rain in the time of the latter rain. And Lord, we know, we see the world around us and we see things shaping up, and yet, Lord, we've seen this in the past where you have brought events to pass and your people were not ready. May it not be so today, Lord. Help us as a people to go the distance. Empower us, Lord, by your spirits. I pray this morning you would give me the words to speak and give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. For we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.
I've entitled this morning's presentation, Not Far, and I've taken that from that passage we were reading in the book of Acts. Paul had gone to Greece, and if you turn there in Acts 17, I just want to draw out from what the apostle is addressing. He had a burden of heart there in Acts 17. If you look at verse 16, this is what the Bible tells us. It says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to what? Idols or idolatry. And of course, this is Athens, Greece is is a center of, of all this idolatry influence. And Paul's heart was burdened as he saw this because he knew that they were not acquainted with the true God. Bible says in verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Let me introduce a, a, a concept to you. Maybe you've thought about this before, but something we need to be clear on is there is a common thread through all idolatry. And when I say all idolatry, I'm including false Christianity. And that common thread is that God is aloof or indifferent or angry and religion is, it has been... Uh, constructed, for lack of a better term, as a means of earning the favor and appeasing an angry God. You go across the board with Eastern religions, like I said, and even into false Christianity, and the mindset of the worshiper is, I've got to somehow get God's attention, got to get Him to love me. We see this in the scripture on the Mount uh, of uh, Carmel, right, where Elijah goes up there, and what are the worshipers of Baal doing all morning? All day. In fact, into the afternoon, they're pleading to the point where Elijah begins mocking them and saying, hey, you know, maybe your God's asleep or he's on a journey somewhere. You need to wake him up or get his attention. And what's funny about the story is the people don't say, hey, you don't know our God. Our God isn't like that. Instead, they're like, hey, you know, he has a point there. And then they begin to try to get their God's attention to the point of cutting themselves. And the Bible says the blood was gushing out on them, trying to get their God's attention. That's common in all religions except true Christianity. I remember when I first became a Christian, and you know, when you first become a Christian, you, 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 the Lord stirs your heart, you've committed your life to Him, but you, there's a lot of, I was going to say, you, you don't have all the answers. Well, I still don't have all the answers. I have more than I did then. And I remember my cousin, my, she was a teenager at the time, and she said, why, why? She was getting into Buddhism. This was a cool thing going on. There was some hot, young Hollywood actor that was in some Buddhist movie, and so everybody's like, oh, this is cool. We're going to look into Buddhist, teenage girls and she was like, yeah, I think Buddhism's cool. Why, why are you so big on Christianity? She said, we Buddhists, and it's funny because she wasn't really a Buddhist, but that's how she identified herself. We Buddhists just are content to be what we are. We don't feel like we have to make everybody else Buddhist. Why do you Christians, what's the big deal about Christianity? Why is that so different? Why is that so much better? And I had to think about that. I didn't have the answer then. But the answer that's come to me is this. Christianity is the only religion where God seeks His people. God, the God, takes the initiative in saving. In every other persuasion, you've got to get God's attention. You take the initiative. We're talking about God's love for man. Paul, as he is 
is going into Athens, he sees this. He knows this, this mindset of paganism. Uh, another picture from Mars Hill, where we're going to read about in just a moment, where Paul is looking out, uh, uh, meeting with the epic Epicureans uh, uh, and these philosophers from Greece to tell them about the true God. I want to share with you a statement from Steps to Christ, pages 10 and 11. It says here, the enemy of good blinded the minds of men so that they looked upon God with fear. They thought of him as severe and unforgiving. Satan led men to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor, a being who is watching with jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men that he may visit judgments upon them. That, the devil loves that. That's, that's the picture he has attempted to put in the minds of people, and he even did that through the sacrificial system. I want you to notice this is a fascinating statement. I remember when I first read this some years ago. Desire of Ages, page 115, tells us that Satan watched as God was instituting the sanctuary services. He, he was looking at that and he was thinking to himself, what is he getting at here? And he discerned in those services that God was revealing the way of salvation through Christ. And notice what it says here in Desire of Ages. With intense interest, Satan watched the sacrifices offered by Adam and his sons. Now, this is, this is not in the wilderness. This is way back when the, they were first instituted, as it says here, with Adam and his sons. Now, notice. In these ceremonies, he discerned a symbol of communion between earth and heaven. He set himself to intercept this communion. What do you think that means? What would it mean for the devil to intercept the communion? He knows what God's trying to communicate, so he grabs it and flips it around. So God's trying to say through the sanctuary service, I'm, this, this sacrificial animal represents my son that I'm giving to you to save you. And the devil says, oh no, I'm going to take that, flip it, and then say, no, the sacrifice is what you have to give me to earn my love. And he took that into paganisms. Paganism's full of animal sacrifices as well, based on that principle. And, and he connected his people, as you read through the Old Testament, with those pagan influences to where the very service of God became turned and twisted to that end. And I want to tell you today that happens too much. We don't bring animals into the sanctuary, but much of our religious worship today, if truth be told, maybe even unbeknownst to ourselves, is us trying to get God's favor and earn it and win it. And it's paganism, no matter what you call it. Notice what this says, Prophets and Kings, page 177. Multitudes have a wrong conception of God and his attributes and are as truly serving a false god as were the worshipers of Baal. You can call him God, you can call him Jehovah, you can call him Yahweh, but if you put on him the characteristics of the pagan gods, that God, that angry God that needs to be appeased, you're not worshiping the God of heaven. Isn't that something? But well, the Lord wasn't going to let things stay this way. Steps to Christ, pages 10 and 11, says it was to remove this dark shadow by revealing to the world the infinite love of God that Jesus came to live among men. He came to change that and reveal what God was really like. Now, Paul, in that light of all that, is looking at this situation of idolatry and wanting to introduce these idolaters to the true God. So, Acts chapter 17, verse 22 the apostle meets with these men of Athens on Mars Hill or the Areopagus. 
Verse 22, that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the God whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. Now notice how he describes Him. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though what? He needed anything. What's their mindset of worship? Everything I'm doing is because my God needs it. Everything I'm doing is to appease him. Everything I'm doing is because he demands it. No, no, no. God doesn't need anything from you, Paul says. What? Wow, this is, this is an unknown God to them. Verse 25 again, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood, speaking of Adam, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is what? Not far from each one of us. Language is, in, is, is incredible. That what Paul's you groping and to find God is as if you're blind and you're looking at, you can't, you're feeling around to see where God is. As if he's far away. And then Paul adds that thing in there, but he's not far from each one of us. God is near, it's just we don't see him because we're looking for the wrong thing. Our conceptions of God have been distorted. So the Apostle Paul wants to bring them into an understanding of who God really is. A God who doesn't need anything from man, but is instead the giver of all good things. A God whose greatest desire is that we would find him and obtain eternal life. A God who is not far from any one of us here this morning, from anyone who's watching this morning, from anyone who's listening this morning. God is very near. Now it's unfortunate, as I said, when we're talking about we're talking about the love of God for man, and when we talk about love, it's unfortunate because our concepts of love today, even in the church, are so shaped by culture. I love my family. I love my dog. Ooh, I love these socks. And by the way, I love pizza. Right? We, there's no differentiation. We just love this and we love that. And our, our concept of love, incidentally, is not really, it's, it's more based on what brings us some kind of pleasure or satisfaction. And, and the problem with that is we then put that on God. We tend to start to understand or want to understand His love that way, but that is not the love of God. The love of God is very different. In fact, in the Bible, now the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. And the word used in the Greek language of the New Testament is the word agape. Now, it's interesting. There are three words in the Greek used for love. There's agape, there's eros, and there's phileo. Agape is a word that the Bible uses exclusively from Greek literature. In other words, you know, you want to find the meaning of the word, you look it up in the dictionary, you look how it's used other places. You can't do that with agape. Because the Bible writers used it in a way nobody else used it because there is no other love like God's love. So when they would talk about God's love, they used that word agape, but they used it in a sense 
of love as a principle rather than an emotion. According to the Vines Dictionary of New Testament Words, agape, notice, expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards entirely unworthy objects. We don't love unworthy objects. We, we love those who love us. We love those who benefit us. It does make sense to us to love those who don't benefit us. And if it does make sense to you, it's because God has touched your heart and mind. It's not natural for us to think that way, but God's love is not based on you. It's based on Him. He doesn't love you because of you who you are. He loves you because of who He is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Look at a couple passages on this. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 4, this is the love of God. Now this is just, to, to this day, I wish I, I could say I have this down. Okay, you know what I mean as we read. Jesus, let's start in verse 43. He says, you have heard it said that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your who? Enemies, as if that wasn't enough. He says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute. You know what does spitefully mean? I mean, spitefully means they plan it out. These are people who don't just persecute you like, hey, who am I going to persecute today? They think ahead. They plan how they can make your life miserable. And what does the Bible say we're to do for them? Pray for them. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Notice verse 45. That you may be what? Sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, look, you need to behave this way because that will make you sons of your Father, right? Like Father, like Son. He says, if, if you act like this, that's how God is. Because God blesses those who curse him. What would happen if when we were ornery, the sun didn't rise that day? Or, you know, the, the oxygen was gone. I mean, you know, in other words, God provides, and nature is full of the providences of God. And, I mean, have you ever thought about this? One thing that I've noticed in Michigan is that in the wintertime, it's very quiet. And it becomes evident in the spring when you open, you ever open the window in the wintertime? You may not even think about it, and it's just like that. At the springtime, you open the window and you hear the songbirds. You ever do that? And it's just, think about what, in fact, I remember in my first church district, I, would, I had this church and I had a hill overlooking my church. And I'd go up in the morning, I'd pray on that hill overlooking my church, and I'd hear the songbirds, and inevitably, every time, the crows would show up. So you get those beautiful songbirds, the breeze, and, the, and then you have that, ah! Ah! Now, I don't want to offend anybody. Maybe you are a crow lover. That's fine. 
But I praise God that not every bird sounds like a crow. Why the multiplicity of songs, right? The colors. What if everything was brown? The tastes. All of these things are evidences to us that God loves to please us, that he wants us to be happy. If we would take the time and, and treasure these things up, and God doesn't just make things taste good to people who worship him. You understand what I'm saying? And that's what Jesus is saying. The sun rises on the good and the bad. The rain comes to the just and the unjust. They all have flowers in their garden of different colors. All are tokens of God's love, not because of who and what we are, but because of who and what he is. Turn with me to Romans 5. Now, Romans 5 is, I don't know how to say this, because you're, you're going to hear me throughout the week saying, this is one of my favorite texts. So I don't know if I, 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 to differentiate, this is one of my most bestest favorite texts, or something like that. This passage is something that I really want you to grasp the significance of this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It's along the same lines of God's love, God taking the initiative, God being the one who reaches out when we don't want to be reached. And Paul puts it in such clear language. Romans 5 and verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for who? Notice he didn't die for the godly. You, you, you know, you're reading this with me, and you're saying, yeah, what, what's the point? But how many times? Have you failed to go to God in prayer because you said, man, I just fell into that sin for the umpteenth time and I can't go to him? Who'd he die for? The ungodly. Don't let ungodliness keep you from God. Now it gets better. He says, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates, that's how the New King James, I forget how the King James words it, but I love that word demonstrates. God demonstrates his own, he's not just talk. God has given the most powerful demonstration of his love that could ever be given, we'll talk about in a moment. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to understand what's being said here. While we were still, in other words, while we were actively sinning and loving it, that's what it's talking about. While we were rebelling against God and had no desire for God, right? Not while we were sinning but thinking, I really shouldn't be doing this. In other words, what I want you to understand is when God sent his son for us, it was when we didn't have the slightest idea or desire to go to God. Which is why he says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were what? Enemies. Now, enemy can work one of two ways. Either I'm fighting against God or God's fighting against me. Let me make something clear this morning. God is not fighting you. When the Bible calls us sinners, that just means we're fighting against God. And we get this, oh, I sure hope I can get God to love me. What do you mean? You're fighting him. God has never been against you. And that's an argument of the enemy. This is what, this is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5. This is what Paul, uh, Paul's trying to get across here. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, 
Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. In other words, God has taken the initiative to save us when we didn't want to be saved. Now that we do want to be saved, how much more can we have hope and confidence in His love? That's the Apostle's point. And again, I just want to leave that idea that it, God always is the initiator. He's not waiting for you to initiate things. He's not waiting for you to say, okay, well, I'm gonna, yeah, I guess I should come to God. And then he's like, okay, well, I hope you hurry and get on with this thing. God is always initiating and moving towards us even when there's nothing in us that wants Him. A common thing I hear, you know, pastoring the academy church, I hear it from young people, it's not just young people. It's this, this thing where people will say, I just, I don't know, pastor, I don't feel like I'm ever going to be good enough. I'm not going to ask if you've said that, because uh, I'm about to rebuke you for it. I say that in love. Let's get something clear this morning from the get-go. You aren't ever going to be good enough. I, 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 we've got to get that out of our mind. God doesn't save us because we're good enough. I mean, for crying out loud, if we had to be good enough, we wouldn't need a Savior. And so when we get in our mind that I've got to be good enough, we're never going to have the hope and confidence and assurance of salvation, right? Because we're not going to be good enough. He's good enough. It's not my goodness that saves me. It's His goodness that saves me. That's the whole point of him taking the initiative. He's not waiting for me to get to a certain point and he steps in. It's God all the way. This is, see, here I go again. This is one of my favorite statements. It is, really. Education, page 294. Notice this statement. This is powerful. It says, the, the divine teacher bears with the erring through all their perversity. His love does not grow cold. His efforts to win them do not cease. With outstretched arms. What kind of arms? With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome once or twice. Again and again, who? The erring, the rebellious, and even the apostate. Who's the apostate? I mean, you compare rebe rebellious is bad enough. Apostate. Somebody's totally turned their back on God, wants nothing to do with him. And what does it say? With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome again and again. The one who is most easily tempted and is most inclined to err is the special object of his solicitude or care. Powerful. Now listen, how many of you, anybody here ever collect baseball cards? Really? Hey, there's one, I see one or two of us in here who were baseball card collectors. Trading cards, you know, you get them in a pack of, 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 of 15 or something with a little plastic, pink plastic piece they call gum. You'd have to have had a pack of cards to know that. And the goal is you would buy, you would get the baseball cards and you would try to collect all the cards for the season, all the players for the season. Of course, you get a pack and sometimes a pack has duplicates or you get five packs and you're going to get duplicate cards. And so you have five Johnny Benches, but you don't have any Ken Griffey's. And so you go to your neighbor and you, he collects cards too. And he says, hey, I have an extra Ken Griffey, but I don't have a Johnny Bench, right? And you trade the cards. And so I grew up 
at one point of my teenage life, collecting and trading baseball cards. And I had at least one, if not two years, of the entire set of cards. I outgrew it, had my cards at my mom's house, and my younger brother came across them. And, 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 and he got into, you know, I just traded him with neighbors, but he would go to these shows. They have shows where you go and you display your baseball cards and you, they auction them off. You know how much money you can get out of a baseball card? I remember my brother telling me, hey, he says, he'd show me one of my old cards. He said, I could get $250 out of this card. I laughed at him. You know, I bought a pack of them for 25 cents. And I said this to him. I said, listen, I'll tell you what I said in a minute. I want to show you something here. This is kind of interesting. Here's a baseball card. This is an old, old baseball card. A guy named Joe Doyle, slow Joe Doyle. Anybody know Joe Doyle? Probably not. I see one person out there who actually knows, maybe a couple who knows slow Joe Doyle. Maybe you know it because slow Joe Doyle's card sold for $414,750. Oh, now you're interested in slow Joe Doyle. You're going to go through Grandpa's attic and see if you can find a slow Joe Doyle card. Now, you know what made this? This is interesting because Joe Doyle wasn't really uh, a, a renowned player like a Ty Cobb or something like that. You know what made this uh, card so valuable is you see that little NATL on the bottom there where I circled it? National League. He played for New York. New York who? There's a quiz. Highlanders. Yankees were the Highlanders before they were the Yankees. Played for the New York Highlanders and they were in the American League and the card said National League. It was a misprint. And that misprint made that card valuable. And I thought about that this morning. You know, sometimes there are things in our characters that feel to us like misprints. I'm not talking about open sins. I'm talking about people have insecurities and they think, oh, if I would only be this way or that, if my hair was only this color, my eyes are only this color, if I was only, only I always say, if I was as tall as Jim Slater, I'm this short guy, if I could, you know, we get all these different ideas of our flaws. But those uniquenesses make us so valuable to God. And this is what I told my brother when he told me how much that car was worth. I laughed at him. I said, listen to me. That car's worth $250 when somebody puts $250 down for it. Don't tell me what it's worth in an auction or don't tell me what it... I want to see somebody pay it. When somebody pays it, then I know what it's really worth. Because the value of anything is determined only by what someone's willing to pay. And friends, this morning, if you miss everything else, I want you to understand this. That the highest price that could ever be paid for anything was paid for you. That whatever flaws you perceive were valuable to God. So valuable he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says in Romans 8, if God spared not his son, but freely gave him up for us all. I think about that. If God spared, I mean, is there something God's holding back? Like, I'll give my son, but there's something I have valuable back here. You can't have it. I mean, he gave everything in that gift for you because that's how he values you. Desire of Ages 394 says this, one soul is of such value that in comparison with it, worlds sink into insignificance. Isn't that something? Worlds, plural, sink into insignificance. God's love for you is constant. It's unfailing. His value for you is infinite. 
his desire for you to be saved is greater than your own desire to be saved. And I want that to be our foundation as we go through this week, because this week I want to talk about going the distance. I want to find out about how we can build a, a, a this morning is more theoretical, but we're going to get practical into building and a, a, a saving relationship with Jesus, an enduring relationship with Jesus, one where we have a steady confidence in Jesus. There's one other thing I want to bring up in this context this morning that's important to me, and that is I want to spend just a moment talking about the wrath of God, and I, and, which doesn't, well, we we're talking about the love of God. It's funny how sometimes, in fact, this isn't very uncommon. It isn't very uncommon. There, there are a lot of people, will, in fact, I've had this, people say this to me before. Sometimes, sometimes they say something like this. You know, I know that God is love, but God is also justice. And we're talking a lot about God's love, but God is also justice. And I just want to touch on that. Talk about the wrath of God as though there's God's love, but then there's also his wrath. As if God's love and something else. Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It doesn't say God is love and something else. The, God, the, the, the wrath of God is a part of God's love, and the justice of God is a part of God's love. And you can't have love without justice. Notice this statement from Desire of Ages. It says, God's love has been expressed in his justice. No what? No less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. Let me illustrate it this way by looking at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to finish with this thought on God's wrath. You'll see why I'm doing this in just a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I need you to follow along here because I'm going to try to trip you up. In fact, we're going to start in verse 16. It's very interesting that the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel, and in the context of the gospel, he brings in the idea of wrath. And you'll see why this is in just a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? The power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Any Bereans here? Did I read that correctly? Going to do it again. Follow along. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who's his wrath against? Nobody. What is his wrath against? You notice what the Bible is not saying. It doesn't say it's his wrath is against ungodly and unrighteous men. It's against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In one reading, God is against the sinner. But in the scriptural reading, God is against the sin. And this is so important. And let me ask you this. Why is God so against the sin? Imagine you have a friend, a son, a daughter, a friend, a loved one, husband, wife, who gets strung out on drugs and overdoses. And you come in and you find them overdosed and you see that needle in their hand. How do you feel about the needle? Let me tell you and don't miss this. How you feel about that needle is directly related to how much you love the individual. The more you love them, the more you hate the needle. 
If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have wrath against sin. He'd be glad for sin because it's going to destroy you and he doesn't like you anyway. The wrath of God is one of the strongest evidences of the love of God. The wrath of God is not against you and me, it's against sin. God wants to destroy sin because it's destroying us. But the greatest challenge he has is we are intertwined with sin. And so through the plan of redemption, God is trying to pull us apart. So that when the day comes when sin is destroyed, we can live for eternity with him. Why? Because God's love for you is steady and constant and unchanging. I'm going to finish in John chapter 3. No, no, no. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8, and I apologize. Just looking at my time here. Let me share with you a couple statements as we're talking about the wrath of God. Great Controversy 605. Notice what it says here. Not one is made to suffer the wrath of God until the truth has been brought home to his mind and conscience and has been what? Rejected. It's a choice that people make. God does everything he can to save. Desire of Ages 764 says God is the what? Fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. God gives them existence for a time, call that probationary time, that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. God's wrath is not against you and me, it's against sin, and God wants to save the sinner. So as the Apostle Paul told those Greek philosophers, and as I'm telling you again this morning, though it may seem at times that God is far from you, and probably not now for most of you, because you're at camp meeting, right? There are things we do, places we go that we know we're in the right place. I could be doing a lot worse things than sitting here a Sabbath morning, right, for the devotional at camp meeting. Perhaps you do feel far from God this morning. Perhaps you feel like you're going through the motions and you're doing this here, but you know that God, how can, he ha how can he possibly love and accept you because of what you've done? Friends, God is not far from you. He's near. He's right beside you. He's bending over you. He's inviting you to himself. You wouldn't even be here if it weren't for that. We'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow morning. God is not far. God is near and God is drawing you to himself. I want to finish with Romans chapter 8. This is a very common verse, and the problem with common verses is sometimes we think we know them so well we don't take the time to ponder them anymore. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. The Bible says, What shall we say to these things? If God is what? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who has died and furthermore is also risen and is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want you to leave with this thought this morning and throughout this week. There is never a time when God is not on your side. There is never a time when God is not on your side. Even those who are destroyed at the end, friends, are not going to be destroyed because nobody's going to be lost because God didn't love them or God stopped loving them. It'll be a choice that they made. And all the way to the end, God will be wooing and entreating. God is always, always on your side. Is that good news this morning? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, this morning I pray, oh, Father, You've spoken through clay. I pray your spirit would make these words alive this morning. I pray that we would sense a little bit more of the unfathomable depths of your love for us this morning. That there's never a time when you stop loving us. That there's never a time that you don't want us saved. That there's never a time when you're in a far-off country or taking a nap and can't be disturbed but that you are always on our side. And Father, may that inspire us with courage and hope to turn to you in every case and to trust you with our lives. I pray that you would bless us through the remainder of these Sabbath hours. Lord, pour your Spirit out upon every speaker and presenter today that we would be drawn closer to you. And Father, give us the kind of views of your love and glory that we must have so that we can go the distance and finish this race. We thank you for hearing and answering, for we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.